Two of the most popular items on the Education Next website each year are our annual lists of articles and blog entries that themselves drew the most traffic. That may be just because they serve as a convenient compilation of the journal's greatest hits, but it may also be due to the insight the lists provide on the current state of the education policy conversation. So what content commanded the most attention from Ednext readers in 2019? And what can we learn as a result? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by the journal's managing editor, Ira Stoll. Ira and I are going to look back today at education in 2019 through the lens of the articles and blog posts that received the most traffic on our website over the past 12 months. Posts with links to the top 20 articles and top 10 blog entries are available online at educationnext.org. Ira, Happy New Year, and welcome back to the Ednext podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So let's start with the list of full-length articles. And at the very top of that list, by a fairly wide margin, was this piece by Claire Seeley, a former principal in a London school who now serves as head of curriculum and standards in the states of Guernsey. I had to look that up. It's a, a small island dependency of the United Kingdom off the coast of Normandy. Her piece was entitled, The Best Way to Help Children Remember Things, Not Memorable Experiences. So I found this quite informative in thinking about my own teaching, that my goal shouldn't be to have students remember the lesson itself, but rather the content of the lesson. And apparently the counterintuitive nature of this advice seems to have uh, caught the attention of uh, a lot of readers. Yeah, I mean, it, it a little bit goes against your intuition, um, right? You, you don't want your students complaining that a class is, is boring. Um, but the teacher actually knows a lot more than the students do. And even though you don't remember an individual class, Seely argues, uh, by the end of a year, you actually learn a lot, and that's the goal more than giving students individual experiences that they might remember. Yeah, and the danger that she warns against is that some of the efforts that educators may undertake to make lessons more engaging, more memorable to students may actually distract them from the substance of what they're actually supposed to be learning. Uh, and you see this piece's popularity as reflecting a growing interest in what's going on inside of the classroom, perhaps at the expense of the structural reforms that have consumed so much of the education policy debate over the past two decades. Where do you see other examples of pieces along those lines showing up on the, the list here? Well, we had a piece by Catherine Barron called Serving the Math Whiz Kids. And I remember, I think you did another podcast with a, with a math teacher just talking about the best way to teach math. So that's not really, doesn't, that could be done in a charter school or a voucher school or a traditional public school. It doesn't require passing a law in Congress. It just requires a math teacher deciding to teach in a way that, that is challenging and that that gets students thinking about the concepts and prepares them for higher level math. And in this case, the activity that Kathy Barron calls our readers' attention to is what's going on in these nonprofit organizations or 
uh, you might say, civil sector organizations that are running alongside the public school system and providing uh, opportunities for math enrichment to particularly talented students. And these organizations seem to be cropping up you know, uh, across the country, in many cases drawing on technology to be able to serve students wherever they're, they're located. Right. It may not even be inside the, the classroom day, but it's after school or on the weekends. Art of problem solving is one of the big ones. And, and, but it goes to this so-called pivot to practice where the education policy readers seem to be more and more interested in, in what's going on in the classroom. Of course, one of the proponents of the pivot to practice, I'm not sure if it proponent is the right term, but one of the uh, uh, thought leaders who's talking about this phenomenon is our own executive editor, Mike Petrilli. One of his pieces showed up here on the top 20 list, arguing that we should uh, put whole language on trial. Uh, what was he arguing in that piece? Well, uh, Mike thinks, uh, and I think he's supported by the evidence on this, uh, that there's a right way to teach reading and a wrong way to teach reading, the right way being phonics and the wrong way being whole language. And you have some states where they're still using whole language or a, a version of whole language that that's masquerading as, as a combination of whole language and phonics. And he says that, that we should try lawsuits like the fiscal equity type of lawsuits that were successful in, the, in prior decades in getting courts involved in, in actually making some fairly heavy-handed decisions and interventions in, in school districts. Uh, so um, Mike is suggesting that that's the next frontier, not, not spending, but getting courts involved in actually mandating curriculum or, or tactics in, in teaching reading. Yeah, the editorial position of Education Next has traditionally been a little bit skeptical of those judicial interventions into education policy making. I, I suppose we're very fair-minded, broad-minded in uh, publishing Mike's musings on, on this topic. Uh, I'm not sure whether I want the courts to uh, start rendering decisions about reading curricula, in part because I'm not sure uh, if they start doing that, where they would stop uh, in terms of saying what should and shouldn't go on in public schools. Uh, but I agree with Mike that there might be some value to the publicity that such a uh, trial could could generate, which I think is the, the thrust of his argument. But again, there we see uh, a lot of interest driven uh, to an attempt to call attention to what exactly students are experiencing in terms of curriculum and pedagogy in the classroom. Uh, I was interested to see a couple of book reviews showing up on the top 20 list, not something that happens every year. Uh, one of them was Doug Lamov's review of neuroscientist Marianne Wolf's book, Reader Come Home. This is a book that looks at how reading is changing in the age of screens. And Doug Lamov really reflects on the way in which the rise of digital media has changed his own practice as a reader, uh, his habits as a reader. And he's not particularly optimistic about uh, the nature of these, of these changes. I don't know if you uh, 
were were impacted by by that article. Yeah, well, it, it's sort of ironic. He's talking about the downside of the digital wor- world or how it affects reading, and we have no idea how many people read his article in print, but we can count quite precisely how many people read it on on the internet. Uh, so there's trade-offs for readers and for publishers of this digital world. We're lucky to be uh, have one foot in both at Education Next. Another book review that made the list was Robert Pondicio on Natalie Wexler's recent book, The Knowledge Gap. Again, a article that's focusing on issues of curricula, in this case, making the case for the importance of a content-rich curriculum in order for students to be strong readers. So after they've experienced the phonics-based early grades instruction that Mike Petrilli is arguing for, what do students need in order to be strong readers? They need to be exposed to a content-rich curricula in the social sciences uh, and science. And you know, this is an argument that people like E.D. Hirsch have been making for some time. Natalie Wexler is trying to advance that cause, and, and Robert Pondicio helps draw attention to it in our pages. Now, there were also a handful of research pieces published in Education Next in 2019 that generated some attention. At the top of that list, the second spot overall, was a piece by Rick Hanyshek, our own senior editor, Paul Peterson, Laura Talpi, and Ludger Wussman, entitled The Achievement Gap Fails to Close, documenting the fact that the gap in achievement on tests like the National Assessment of Educational Progress, where we can look at student performance nationwide, and the gap between the haves and the have-nots, families with high socioeconomic status and low socioeconomic status, that gap has been remarkably constant over the past half century. This is a study that looked at this question over the longest period of any research to to date. I thought it was interesting to look at the coverage and discussion of this study. Uh, To some extent, when Paul and Rick and their colleagues first shared the results with us, I thought of the paper as offering good news because there's been a lot of hand-wringing and some analyses to suggest that the achievement gap with respect to income, socioeconomic status has really been widening in the past handful of decades in particular. This at least showed things weren't getting any worse, but I don't think that was the dominant interpretation of, of the study's results. No, I think um, certainly some conservatives seized on it to show that, oh, gee, we've spent all these tens of billions of dollars more on trying to close this gap, uh, and it hasn't closed. So it was it was seen as proof that continuing to pour additional resources into that status quo system would be a, would be a big mistake. Um, Which I don't think was exactly the interpretation that the authors were advancing themselves. I don't think they would say that this is the right way to evaluate the effectiveness of those investments on the part of the federal government or the or the states. Uh, you know, who knows, maybe things would look a lot worse were it not for those investments. Uh, but uh, you're right that that certainly was uh, one of the takeaways that some some readers had. Yeah, and you know, 
I guess it's a risk of research in general that people seize on it to, for evidence to, it's confirmation bias where they, they have a pre-existing point of view and they are look, looking out for research that will confirm it. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, in this case, we managed, we managed to provide it. Uh, so it's still, it's still being debated as well. Um, there's differing interpretations about how bad the new, how bad the news actually is. And we saw that also with the various rounds of test scores that have been that have come out this past year. Certainly, with the release of the National Assessment of Educational Progress, the PISA results both towards the end of the year, uh, sort of, again, suggesting a, a lack of progress, uh, both in terms of overall achievement and gap closing over time. Uh, not everyone, though, just sort of interprets all research as confirming what they had always believed. Uh, one of the uh, articles high on the list, number four overall, Paul von Hippel, a researcher at the University of Texas at Austin, writes about really his loss of faith in one of the most widely cited education research findings out there, the notion of a summer learning loss where students in general and disadvantaged students in particular lose a huge amount of academic ground over the summer and that this is one of the key drivers of the achievement gap over time. Paul von Hippel talks about how he was once a believer in this concept, but ultimately came to conclude that really there was not a lot of evidence to support it, that what happens over the summer doesn't seem to be the big driver of the achievement gaps that we see between students from different socioeconomic backgrounds by the time they're in elementary, middle, and high school. Right, this kind of puncturing of a of a balloon of a well-founded or at least widespread belief uh, is summer learning loss real is a little bit similar to the Claire Seeley one. You know, the best way to help children remember things not memorable experiences. Well, you know, people like to read, I guess, and find out why things they thought were true actually aren't true. And so Von Hippel did a good job with that, and I think we published it uh, just as the summer was was approaching. So it's something that that educators are thinking about going into the summer is how to prevent the summer learning loss. And I guess it must have been a bit of relief if any students read it to know that they could go enjoy the summer without having to worry about losing all their learning. <laughs> No, they do learn, students do learn at a slower rate over the summer than at other times of the year. They may even stagnate or slip a bit. It just doesn't seem to be that this is a phenomenon that's really driving achievement gaps uh, over, over time. Uh, another research piece that captured some attention was entitled Rise and Shine. This is by Jennifer Heisel and Samuel Norris, looking yet again at the issue of school start times, providing in my view, the most compelling evidence we have to date that it really is better for middle and high school students to start school later than they typically do uh, because of their biological clocks, because of the challenges they have getting to sleep early and what early school start times therefore mean for their alertness, their ability to learn uh, during the school day. Uh, this is a 
perennial issue in school districts around the the country, uh, but one that seems very difficult to actually change uh, uh, despite the evidence. Yeah, it's funny. I happen to be an early riser, so this issue doesn't really resonate for me. But it was very satisfying to see that the state of California, which has something like 2 million high school students, uh, actually changed their law this year. It got passed to require a later start time for, for high schools. And an earlier Education Next article that we did on this issue was cited during the California Assembly debate on the topic. Yeah, I'm not sure what to make of that California law, whether it really is the right approach here to have the state legislature say to every school district in a huge state like California that you need to change your high school start times very soon. We also ran a piece alongside this research piece. It also made the top 20 sneaking in at number 19 called How to Make Schools Start Later. And this was by a journalist named Danielle Drylinger. And she went to look at some of the places where school districts had successfully shifted their school start times in response to this research. And, you know, it wasn't, the lesson wasn't do it all at once statewide with no planning. It was that this is going to take some work. And uh, so let's hope that there's enough wiggle room in California's mandate to let school districts to draw on some of the lessons that Drylander offers in that piece. Right. Well, I guess the oh, the worst case scenario would be some sort of federal mandate for later start times. And, and uh, you know, we'll see how late they could go. I mean, I think California is aiming for 830. But um, if that works, you know, who knows? It could be 10, could be 11, could be school not starting before noon. <laughs> Well, there's some other articles on the list that we haven't talked about, a couple on higher education, uh, another one on technology, looking at whether Wi-Fi systems actually pose a health threat in schools, as is often suggested. A great piece by Ron Matus looking at how school choice, both charters and within district choice options, have really revolutionized education in the school district of Miami, a district that's really flown under the radar screen in many respects. But Let's turn our attention now to the blog. We don't have time to talk about all of the top 10 lists, so I thought we'd just focus on the top three, which share something in common, and that's that Ira Stoll is the author. So first of all, congratulations on sweeping the podium on top 10 blog posts this year. Thank you. And let's talk about what caught readers' uh, eyes. Uh, the first piece, you found an opportunity to ask Mayor Pete Buttigieg when he was here in Boston as a candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination about his views on some education policy topics. Tell us about that. Well, at that point, Mayor Pete was much less well-known than he is now, but I did make it over to Northeastern where he was talking and he drew a big crowd at Northeastern. I think Northeastern had invited him even before he became a presidential candidate. And there was a little press conference beforehand and uh, I think he actually called on me first and, and I asked him w what his views were about charter schools or and education more generally. He kind of dodged the charter school 
part of it. I actually later found out that he'd met the previous day or day before that with the with a major teacher union head. Um, but then a Boston Globe re- reporter or columnist who was there followed up and said, you know, what about the charter schools that the guy asked about? And um, and Pete yeah, kind of gave a not a totally negative answer. Um, he said he thought they could be useful um, as places to experiment with things and learn from, but he didn't think they should be an excuse for defunding the traditional public schools. Um, and and so that was good. We got him to answer the question, which he might not otherwise have. And later in the appearance, he talked about free college, which is also an issue that um, some of the other candidates are are very much for free college for everyone. And Mayor Pete has a more limited plan for for free college. And so that's become an ongoing issue. And I think people are going back and looking at our story to understand that a little bit better. Yeah, I think that was the first time he was on record raising questions about whether free college was actually as progressive as it sounds. And uh, oh, it's it's good to have been part of uh, breaking that story. And, uh, you know, he certainly has not been the only Democratic candidate wrestling with how exactly to uh, address the topic of charter schools. This is something that uh, we discussed as a challenge facing the Democratic candidates in interpreting the results of our 2019 Education Next poll, which show that support for charter schools among Democrats has really fractured along racial and ethnic lines with white Democrats being very skeptical and black and Hispanic Democrats being more supportive. And it's hard for a candidate to take a clear position for or against in that environment. Yeah, we saw that that issue of minority Democrat voters and charter schools coming up with another one of these blog posts, uh, the one about Sarah Carpenter, who confronted Elizabeth Warren about school choice in in Atlanta. And I mean, that's like a compelling personal story. Sarah Carpenter, uh, former house cleaner, um, whose grandchild went to a KIPP school in Memphis and became the first in four generations in her family to graduate from college. Um, but it's also just was a compelling video of, of Carpenter confronting Warren and saying to her, well, you sent your kid to private school. Why can't our kids have the same choice? And so I think this blog post managed to piggyback a little bit on that video, which last I checked had gotten like 2 million views or something. If only we could uh, have quite that breakthrough, that would be uh, quite a development, of course. And of course, alongside Sarah Carpenter in Atlanta, confronting Elizabeth Warren was Howard Fuller, who's been a guest on this podcast, a contributor to Education Next over the years as well. So we talked about the first and third most popular blog posts of the year. In between those two was a piece that you wrote in March pegged to the unfortunate death of Harvard political scientist Sidney Verba. Your piece 
talked about Professor Verba, but really focused on the high school that he attended. What drew your attention to James Madison High School in Brooklyn, New York? Well, that school produced not only Sidney Verba, but also six Nobel laureates, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and not only uh, Senator Charles Schumer, the Senate minority leader, but also now um, Senator Bernie Sanders, who's a leading presidential candidate on the Democratic side. And Judge Judy as well, I believe. Judge Judy, who's uh, who's who's now a big, um, who's now ca- out campaigning with Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Um, so, so how did one high school? This wasn't an elite test into it sort of high school. It wasn't in a wealthy suburb. It was just uh, as one person who went there described it: ordinary. Uh, Brooklyn High School, how did it produce all these these impressive graduates? Uh, There's no other school that I can tell that has done anything similar in terms of the output of Nobel laureates. Um, You know, maybe Andover Exeter has gotten there with with senators or politicians. Uh, Those are that's an elite private school. so, so I actually did a lot of reporting for that piece and talked to people who had been to the school and went through some of the alumni newsletters and tried to dig into the answer to that question. And, and what the people who went there, who also were puzzling over this question, really came up with was that the families in that neighborhood who, who went to the school placed a high value on education. Uh, So maybe it may not have been something that had to do with the school, but something that had to do with the the people and the families who were customers of the school at that particular time and place. It may not be the most satisfying uh, answer if you're trying to replicate it or if you're trying to build a school that will produce another round of Nobel laureates and senators, but that seemed to be the consensus among the people I talked to for that blog post. So those are the top blog posts of 2019. One of the things we see from two of the top three is that there's clearly an appetite for coverage of education in the context of the 2020 election. Question going forward in 2020 is, is there going to be any attention to education to cover? I guess we're going to have to wait and see. Yeah, I think we will. I think we will see it. Um, you know, the the foreign policy stuff seems, and the impeachment stuff seems to be pushing it out of the headlines recently. But I think once some of those things calm down, as I predict they will, uh, I think people will come back to it. Even though education in the U.S. is mainly a state and local issue, I think the certainly the student debt issues and the college students and the, the youth vote in the, in the election will be an issue. And I think if, if the candidates are looking for, for strategies for economic growth 
and to address some of the problems the country is facing, um, I think they may conclude that there are some answers to be found in education. So we'll have to look at these lists next year and see the extent to which that is the case. My guest today has been Ira Stoll, Managing Editor of Education Next. You can find blog posts with links to all of the articles and blog entries that we discussed and more on our website at educationnext.org. Ira, thanks for being part of the podcast. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.